you know, I'm growing so hard. All of a sudden I felt this burning sensation in my lower abdomen. And I was like, oh shit. I mean, did I just get impaled by a stick or something? Cause I was hitting definitely stuff in the bed surface and probably rocks. All of a sudden, poof, I'm just floating in the air. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers by making a donation today. Visit www. TetonCountySAR.org slash donate. My name is Greg Epstein. I was born and raised in Jackson Hole. Greg Epstein cut his teeth skiing the backcountry of Jackson Hole. Along with friends, he had explored every nook and cranny of Granite Canyon, just outside resort boundaries in Grand Teton National Park. As part of his job at Teton Gravity Research, he ran avalanche safety and wilderness first aid workshops for the film company's production crew and athletes. So he was prepared for a rescue. He just didn't expect it to be his own. Back in the day at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, they had a Sesame Street run. Big Bird, uh, Ernie, Bert, Cookie Monster. I don't know. It's cool. <laughs> that was one of the first times I skied. It was probably when I was, I don't know, three or four. My brother and I, we actually did a lot of our early ski lessons and stuff at Snow King through the Bill Briggs program and Jim Sullivan and so we did ski lessons there and then little waxers. When I was probably like 10 or 11 I started ski racing on the Jackson Hole Ski Club and my brother was a little younger, my brother Mark. I competitively skied until I got out of high school. Skiing was in our blood, you know, that's, that's what we did. That was our all winter long focus. In 1989 when I graduated high school I went to University of Utah purely because it was close to many ski areas. At that point, you know, I was 18, 19, 20, the young male, and we were starting to push into the backcountry in Utah. In Utah, I'd say was probably the first place, really, maybe some in Colorado and a little bit in Canada, but was one of the first places where they were really starting to do avalanche awareness. And I remember getting a peeps when I was 20, maybe. The avalanche, heavy ones and twos and threes, those things didn't really exist for the person that wasn't going to be a professional. 1999, I decided it was time to move back to Jackson. So that first winter was when I moved back and all of a sudden the boundaries are open and I had another group of friends who lived here and if you've followed the Air Force and followed sort of what the Jackson Air Force was all about. I mean, granite was not a new concept and really the side country wasn't a new concept for a lot of these individuals either. And so I had a handful of friends that had already been skiing granite a bit starting in 2000 until 2014. I was going into granite a lot at times, multiple times a day, like most days, multiple times a day. I mean, I was versed. I mean, we pretty much of it had explored every little nook and cranny and just how to work our way out of different things. And there was always in the back of our mind that 
you could get slid. I mean, a handful of my friends have been slid in there. It wasn't something that I ever took lightly or ever took for granted. No pun intended. (laughs) My name is Reed Finlay. I moved to Jackson, Wyoming in the fall of 1992. I was a lift operator, and I was would say I'm still pretty much learning to ski at the time I moved out here. So I had no conception of what these guys were even doing back in Granite Canyon. You'd hear, you'd hear stories about Granite Canyon. And to me, I was like, well, let's focus on Werner or Aprevu. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to kind of get my chops first. I mean, I remember before the gates were opening, you had to sign out at the ski patrol. You had to go back to this little office in the back and you had to have a little sheet and tell tell the ski patroller where you were going to go. I mean, I would just the same thing, pile around with people who basically maybe some Air Force people who had been going back into Granite and knew it. My first time into Granite Canyon was in 1994, probably the spring of 1994 on Telegear. It was a tour to the Arch, which is kind of a rite of passage for a lot of people. So it wasn't like, you know, a steep cooler or anything like that. But it was also in the early days of transceivers and all that. And so as as a lifty at the time at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, you know, I had my own little transceiver. And I must say, I probably wasn't that well versed into, you know, what we now know. You had to save those days when you were going to go into Granite, at least legally. You know, you had to really pick and choose your days because Granite Canyon was not open all the time. It's kind of taken for granted now. You know, you just hike up the headwall or you go out gate to the top of Rendezvous Bowl and the world is your playground. There's no chairlifts back there. There's no ski patrol. The park rangers aren't going to come get you anytime soon. Once once you go through that gate, you really are on your own. It was a place where, you know, we knew that there were good conditions, but it was a place that we also knew that we needed to uh, take seriously. I never went in there by myself. I always skied with least a partner. Getting to March 9th, 2014 when I got slid the day before was like a super sunny March day beautiful kind of warm the snow was slushy and fun and the the east facing side of the mountain inbounds was just fun skiing I remember we just had like a posse of friends cruising around just having a great day and but the next day which was Sunday it was kind of cloudy everything had frozen up on the front side of the mountain it was pretty coral reefy and it was flat light, so it just wasn't all that fun. And so, you know, that's always the days where you're like, okay, the front of the mountain's not that great. Let's go take a peek at granite. I had one particular run that I always kind of liked and felt like it was a good starter run. So you can kind of feel the snow, and, and then it kind of drops into this angled chute. The scariest part actually is not that chute, but it's jutting across endless kind of at this cruxy spot and getting kind of onto the saddle between endless and mile long. You're just exposed to all the snow above you on in endless and you're exposed to potential people skiing above you in endless. You're also kind of right on this crux of there's like a rock starting zone that will take you down to the rest of endless. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a little spooky. And, and it's also, if you got caught in a slide there, it would be, there's a lot of rough terrain and, rocks and it's kind of sharky and some broken trees and stuff like that that would it would really beat you up so we skied that chute solid you know there's kind of at the top of this oblique chute there's these 
a lot of wind can kind of blow stuff around and we jumped around on that and, you know, nothing moved and did, dug a, a hasty pit and felt comfortable, stropped off. And we'd skied mile long. There's some trees and there's some rocks and, you know, just messing around and, and nothing was, you know, nothing was moving, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing weird. Skated out and noonish or... 1230 when we got out and I remember we were down sitting at the general store and the sun was kind of coming out. It was definitely getting warm on the east side of the mountain. I think we got some to drink and said, hey, you know, maybe let's go for another run. So I uh, went back up the tram, went up the boot pack on the head wall and said, well, let's, let's go out a little further. And so we stayed up on the ridge worked our way over to the uh, top of football field. In my mind, and I've skied granite so many times, it's it's got a microclimate. You know, what's happening on the east side of the mountain is not very representative of the temperatures and the wind and a lot of other things that's happening in in granite. It's, it's got it's, its own beast. So I was, you know, talking with my group and, you know, said, well, here's this we could go in here, you know, and I was like, okay, it's kind of technical. We can, you know, you can either kind of, kind of shoot the, shoot this little groove down into this place called the football field, or you can kind of work your way along these, the edge of these rocks and kind of work your way through. And I said, you know, for safety reasons, I think we should just work our way along these rocks because we can sort of ski cut our way down into, and if it, if things seem super spooky, it's, it's not that hard if we needed to just boot back out. And I had skied this entry into granite more, I think, than any anybody else. So I said, well, I'll just go and ski cut this, and I'll show you kind of how we work our way down through this. And there had been some wind maybe the night before, two nights before as well. So I cut the top, and, you know, it was drifty. But again, nothing moved that you wouldn't out of the ordinary. It was kind of sloughy. So then I worked my way down and kind of quickly skied down through this little just kind of this little rocky starting zone and then you're then it's into this football field which which is this wide swath that's 25 30 degrees maybe all the other crew the other three skiers come down and i'm uh just standing there watching and just it made it look super fun looking good so then I uh, said, "Okay, guys, we have an we we you know here's a decision we need to make right now. We can take a left here and just work our way down into uh, mile long, or we can take a right, and that puts us at the top of Double Dogleg." So we talked about it, and again, because we just skied through a couple things and pretty much the same aspect, a little bit higher elevation, and and didn't have any any issues, no small pockets or anything ripped out. I said, well, let's go check out Double Dog Leg. My crew was standing. There's kind of like a, a, a little sub ridge that's on the south side of of a Double Dog Leg and where the chute kind of starts. And they were standing up there. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to cut across to this little grouping of trees. It's in the starting zone. I cut across, stop, stopped in the tree, like next to these trees. Again, nothing out of the ordinary except for some slough. I can't remember, but I think I said to them, I said, my island of safety, but I knew it in my mind, my island of safety is about 70 yards below you guys to the left, or right below them on that same subridge if something were to go weird. 
dropped in, turn one, good, and then starting turn two, all of a sudden, spider webbing in front of me had gone sympathetically all the way up around me from the above those trees. And at that point, I was like, okay, island of safety. You're, you know, and I had thought I had enough speed. So I was just cruxing this little ridge and a bigger panel of snow caught my skis and just flipped me back into, in, into the slide path backwards. I was going backwards down, double dog leg, just going, okay, this is interesting. Pretty aggressive and pretty fast and it was just white, white, white. So I, I believe the first thing I did is my goggles are starting to get pushed down over my mouth. So I actually grabbed my goggles, had the wherewithal and just placed them right on the edge of my head, above my eyes, but not over my mouth. And then just systematically, boom, pulled my, the handle on my airbag. That thing deployed. I was like, oh, cool, it works. But then the slide was going fast and I was like hitting rocks. And, you know, I was in the, the bed layer on a 50 degree slope or 45 degree slope. I got into this sort of athletic position with my hands and my feet. And I was just like gurring. And I was like, okay, we're just going to ride this thing out. And I'm just, it's just going fast. And I thought, okay, you know, we're just, it's going to be fast and aggressive for you know, a few seconds or whatever, but I, you know, I knew that it sort of dog lagged and I thought I was going to just kind of roll with the contour of the shoot. And then, you know, I'm gurring so hard, all of a sudden I felt this burning sensation in my lower abdomen. And I was like, oh shit. I mean, did I just get impaled by a stick or something? Cause I was hitting definitely stuff in the bed surface and probably rocks and uh, some other stuff. And, and I was just like, oh man, that, that, I don't know, that's not good. And then all of a sudden, I'm just floating in the air and I'm just like, this, this is how it's going to end, huh? And I had enough time where I, I thought about, like I had time to think about, wow. And, and in my head, I was like, I don't remember there being like a big cliff here or anything like that. So I'm floating in the air and just quick thoughts of reality hit me this might be the end. And, and, uh, you know, I just, I didn't think it was going to be this way. And all of a sudden, bam, just massive impact hit, hit the snow kind of pop up. I'm still conscious. I'm like, holy shit. And then simultaneously, I feel my leg shatter. So I landed in this little teeny toothpick tree forest right below the dog leg. My ski hit a tree, shattered my leg, snapped the ski in half. And I'm like, okay, when is this slide gonna end? It's just still going. And fortunately I was on the surface. I was on the surface. I'm like, okay. I'm like, this thing gotta end soon. I'm, I mean, now I'm in writhing pain. I'm not sure if I'm bleeding um, and just really, really banged up now but still completely conscious, like not even phased. Like I was acutely aware of what was going on. And then finally the slide comes to a halt and I'm, I'm just like, my head is facing 45 degrees downhill. I think I still had one ski on. I'm pretty sure I had one ski on. I might've had one pole in my hand. My leg is completely, I mean, it's just so painful. 
But I had the wherewithal, so the first thing I did is I just yelled, started yelling to my friends. I said, just stop where you are, call 911, and I started yelling it. But, you know, I didn't know if they heard me. So the app, the next step was I just went for a chunk check on myself, and I immediately went down into my leg and just put my hand up under my ski pants and just to make sure there was no blood. And then I went into my abdomen, and I just went under there and I made sure that there was no blood, and I was not bleeding. I was like, holy shit, I'm there. I thought I was like, had a stick through me and all sort of, sorts of stuff. So I kind of knew that I wasn't going to bleed out anytime too quickly. My buddy, Josh Nielsen, just came ripping down. And afterwards he told me, he's like, yeah, we got our beacons out and we just started to do the, the search. And he kind of just went, he just beelined it. And then I think about halfway up, he saw me. And so he just came straight down to me. Um, and I, you know, I think while I was laying down there, I kept yelling, just call 911, just call 911. Cause as you get deeper into granite, you start to lose cell service. So I was really concerned that we weren't going to be able to talk to anybody and that, you know, potentially one of the people in my party was going to have to at least get out what we call the corner, get around to the east, sort of the east face of granite. And you'd get really, that's where you get cell reception again. We were lucky and we were just up high enough to where there was cell service. So to back up, when I was working at Teton Gravity Research as the head of production, I also was responsible for Teton Gravity Research's risk management in the mountains. Teton Gravity Research is a action sports and adventure lifestyle media company that, uh, wow, they must be on like 22 or 23 annual movies ski movies and, and snowboard movies, and then they've done a bunch of other ski and snowboard and surf projects along the way. So they've been a big part of the mountain lifestyle culture. I was one of and part of a program that we called the International Pro Riders uh, Workshop, which was about uh, snow safety, mitigation, and ultimately rescue. We'd been doing this training for years and years and years. And it was all about, because it was the team mentality for us out in the mountains with TGR. I mean, if something were to go down, Josh Nielsen, he previously had worked for TGR. He knew the training. And then Max Hammer was one of our uh, athletes. He had taken this training, um, you know, beyond, and plus he'd taken Woofer and some other stuff. He knew the training. So I basically just started running my own rescue. And I had dispatch or the sheriff's office in my phone. I said, okay, we need to call. Let's call them first. You know, and then we'll, once we get on with dispatch or whoever we need to talk to, we can start to walk them into where I am. You know, we got the call. I remember our dispatcher was trying to get in touch. It was real patchy. So we were kind of on standby, like where exactly is this happening? I remember you were very faint. Because I think you were just in that kind of gray zone of self-service coming in and out. When it all started happening, Drew Nealon, our director, I remember he was dispatching us once things got going. Yeah. Max Hammer stayed on me. Once they kind of did a full chunk check and, you know, definitely realized, yeah, there's definitely some broken parts, but no, no bleeding or anything like that. You know, he just kind of wrapped me up in all the jackets and things we had and he just stayed on my head the whole time and was just watching my vitals and talking to me. And Josh Nielsen, I think he kind of then just started dealing with the rescue side, the logistics of having a heli come in. I think 
potentially looking for you guys, making sure that Mm -hmm. you guys were coming down to the right place. And he also kind of helped Glenn, who was um, less experienced in this whole first aid side of things, rescue operation. Before you guys got there, I think I was, we were kind of hanging out for about an hour, hour and 20 minutes or so. And I was pretty good. I felt, I mean, I was in a lot of pain and I was definitely a little shocky, but still super conscious. But then right as you guys came, the weather sort of shifted and it start. the wind started picking up and it started snowing. Through my experience with Teton Gravity Research, I've been around a lot of helicopters. I started getting a little worried. Okay, I don't know if they're going to be able to fly in here because again, granite gets foggy, gets socked in, the wind, there's a lot of terrain in there. There's a lot of updraft and downdraft and just weird stuff. And I really didn't necessarily want to be part of bringing in a bunch more people in a helicopter because that's just a whole nother level of risk. I mean, even though you're just out of bounds, the rescue gets far more complicated. If there wasn't a heli, I'm going to get pulled out in a sled on a fairly rough um, traverse, and it's going to take a lot of work by all the, all the rescuers. Um, probably would have been very painful for me. You know, we're lucky that in Teton County that we have a very robust search and rescue agency with, that's well-funded and, and has all the necessary tools to save people's lives in um, any sort of condition, really. Drew Nealon was up there at the time. He's he's now the director of the ski patrol, but he wanted a couple of guys or girls, whoever was up there, to go out and look for this person. We were going to be the first responders. So I've been a patroller since 2005, 2006, I believe. So I got Pete Jenkins with me, and we didn't take any gear. We had to ski down Tin Sleep Bowl, you know, off the top of the tram, go to the bottom of the Peppy's Bench headwall hike, hike up to the jailhouse, and then just follow the ridge, basically all the way to the east over towards the top of Opravu lift, kind of determine where to, to drop in. And thankfully, at the top of the Air Force chutes, there are these uh, big rock pinnacles, which we call Stonehenge. Great indicator for us. Because I, I remember, you know, when you're on one of these rescues and you're the first one, you're like, oh boy, you don't want to mess up. Pete and I took our time. I remember the avalanche hazard was considerable, so we weren't just bombing down looking for these guys. So once we got to the top of the Air Force chute, um, Pete and I had a, I remember having a quick little discussion with him about how he would ascertain the terrain as we went down. Because I, I do remember the, the call came in there in the TNT shoot. There weren't many tracks, if any, in the Air Force couloir. And so and I remember looking down in the TNT, kind of the starting zone of that. And I was like, God, there's no tracks really. These could have been from yesterday, but maybe there was some wind. Because we were obviously looking for tracks, fresh tracks from these guys. So we worked our way down. Uh, to basically a point where you could look over into the bottom of TNT chute and you couldn't see anything. So we realized we're just going to have to start traversing skiers left or up canyon and hope that we are not too low because we kept thinking, God, what if he slit? he's above us somewhere and we're too low. To, you know, uh-huh. we, we came in the wrong chute. I, I remember I went first and traversed the bottom of TNT with Pete watching me and then Pete traversed over in my track and then we went below, uh, I think it's New Davies is the next couloir. And then there's just a lot of little broken, beat up little gullies in there. And we just kind of kept working our way over. Did start to hear voices. And it must have been one of the guys, Josh or someone, you'd kind of sit around. Because I remember there was someone 
kind of who kind of guided us in and pointed us up the canyon. It came across as someone in Greg Epstein's party was hurt. When I got to you, I was like, oh, it's you. And you're like, yeah. Basically, all of the phone conversations were you. So we're like, okay, obviously, Greg is not the one who's hurt because he's doing Making comms, the call, yeah. But you were the injured party. And yeah. so when I, when I saw you, I was like, oh, shit. It's Greg. It's Greg, <laughs> shit. My name is uh, Jeff Burke, and I originally moved to Jackson – in 1994, I started on the ski patrol at Snow King in 2001 and then migrated over in like 2000, 2006, 2007. I think every time everybody goes into granite, there's this thing in the back of your head that says, move with purpose. You're always telling yourself, make a good decision. We all get caught up and I've been in granite when I know I shouldn't have been there and probably gotten a little luckier than I should have been. But every time we do go in there, it's kind of move, be on your best behavior and move with purpose. And you can still get caught. It happens. I got there, Pete right behind me. And I did feel like, honestly, when I got there, you know, I saw it was Greg, but Greg had been running a good show. I didn't know you'd kind of been as coherent as you were for about an hour or so, but, but you were definitely starting to go under. The guys had packed out kind of a platform about this table height. So we were standing like, it was like being on a table right at your body oh, yeah. level. And I do remember your head was, you're kind of contorted down to the skier's right. And you look pretty pallid. Again, it was so fresh in my mind on how to do it. And I had cell service and, you know, again, Max, I was being stabilized, but at the same time, just getting the rescue started. I mean, I had all the numbers already in my phone. I mean, all this, it just lined up because, I mean, I was... I'm prepared. I was prepared for these kinds of things. Maybe not to me, happening to me, but maybe somebody else in my party, or you just never sure. know. But when we got to where Greg was, the wind was picking up. It was lightly snowing. And I just kind of remember the clouds being a little lower than they had been on the east side of the, the Massif. Al Walker and I think we're at the gondola, and we were told to hike up to the jailhouse, which is a hut that we have at the top of the headwall that we can station uh, materials for opening and closing the headwall, Casper Bowl, the crags, etc. And we also have a, a rescue cache up there as well. These guys kind of brought the more urgent material, mm -hmm. Al and Jeff, and then Pete brought the material for transport. Oxygen, I think a pelvic binder we yeah, had. Yeah, and originally we tried to put it on you, and you're like, no. And then later, I think that we were able to get you in a better position of comfort and then use the pelvic binder, because when you have that unstable hip... It can allow blood loss and all kinds of different things. And when you close the book, it kind of like stabilizes and usually um, helps reduce pain, discomfort, things like that. But originally, you were like, no, 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 let, let that thing out. I remember cranking it to shut it, and you were like, take that fucking thing off. <laughs> Greg had been there for so long. I, I believe you were shivering or you were cold. I, I mean, was pretty much hypothermic at that point. I'm They're pretty getting sure there. Someone yeah. had some heat packs, you had which heat is packs, very. I remember because we I think we brought that as well. Them up in my, uh, up in my jacket, and once we decided we were going to have a helicopter, and there was luckily just this little slight depression, no trees around or anything for a good LZ, a decent LZ, and so they went down and started stomping out the pad, making it flat, and, I, and there might have been one or two other people just coming down the canyon who happened to be skiing, and they they assisted, but I just remember throughout the whole time we were packaging putting greg in the toboggan 
dealing with his injuries, trying to get him down the helicopter. He was he was in a lot of pain. The urgency was brought to the fore. Like, yeah, this guy has been here for an hour. The weather is changing, and he's he's got something severe going on in his pelvic region. The the other thing is, I had to take a huge piss. Oh, I'm sure. And I couldn't. I th- I remember when I did get down to the ambulance, I asked the EMT for a catheter, and he's like, "I can't give you one." I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" Because on, I couldn't, dude. I couldn't relax. And he's like, "Just go," and I'm like, "That's not the problem, man. It's just." But that that was so. I think when you, aside from the fact that my pelvis was it was really painful, I think also my bladder was like so full. Oh, dude, yeah, and right. right you, when you squeeze the thing, I was like, "Oh, that man. just exacerbated the whole thing." <laughs> exactly. Okay. Wow. I remember. When we did, when we finally packaged Greg up and we were going down to the the LZ, the snowpack sucked. And we actually had, it was really hard because it was breakable. It's a two-man rig, which we is standard protocol, but we also used a belay because it was so strange and awkward. Yeah, and it took couldn't. us a while. We didn't have to go that far. It wouldn't, the gravity, you just couldn't let the sled toboggan go down because yeah. it would hit that breakable crust and just stop. So we had, I think we would just, we rotated out a uh-huh. few times. We had two people in the handle, but we would just kind of two or three guys below mm-hmm. just pulling and reefing on the toboggan to get Greg down because otherwise the toboggan was just kind of submarining under that breakable crust. Yeah. You know, they were afraid either A, it's going to flip over and tip me out mm-hmm. or, or B, it just wasn't moving very well. I, I do remember it being... Um, and I think also because I was in such severe pain, they were also trying to be as gentle as possible going over some of this variable conditions and stuff. I also remember just where the helicopter landed. It wasn't the best place, but it was really the only place where a helicopter could have landed in that zone because it was like a little bit of a depression. And they always teach you, you know, when you stomp out an LZ, you don't want to have be in a hole too much because the rotors can theoretically, you know, hit the slope. So it was just right on the verge of being usable. Otherwise, like Greg was saying, it would have been a snowmobile transport, a long slog out, right. and we we did not want to do that. And I, I assume the others didn't want to either. Well, and it was also at that point, almost five o'clock in the evening. Yeah. It was getting, it was to the point where it was March, so there was still some daylight, but it wasn't going to last much longer. Right. I was impressed with the the LZ actually, because I remember coming in under the rotors, looking up, and I'm and I'm like, kind, I think I kind of looked over to the edge, and that rotor was probably two feet from that uphill snow. Yeah. So they they've got it in there. I I was I was like okay. So you know when the pilot is coming in, you know she's really watching that uphill rotor to make sure she doesn't because if if the rotor hits the snow, she's leaving. Yeah, or, or or worse. I mean, or worse is that you have a more catastrophic event. I was I was impressed. <laughs> she she essentially set it down and imagine setting down a, a a toy helicopter in a di- in like a small shallow dish, and then you see how close the rotors are to the the rim, and we were within. I think we were in like within the threshold, like just barely. Basically, just puts you in. Feet, feet first. Then I think they came back and they flew us out. I mean, I know. They might have flown you out. Yeah. You didn't get flown out? <laughs> no, dude. <laughs> That's funny. Jeff had right? to st- drag the sled back yeah. out and around. What? 
<laughs> I'd for, I forgot that part, but way to go. No, it's, above and beyond. I do. I do. I try to do my part. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Looking back, that was, I think, one of my first big Granite Canyon rescues. Just the fact that Greg's skiing companions, they had the wherewithal and the knowledge to basically be first responders on the scene. And then the way the communication worked, mm-hmm. you know, between his party and the ski patrol and the communication with search and rescue. I mean, I remember it used to not always be flow that smooth between search and rescue, the park service and the ski patrol. And I think it's so much a more integrated system now. And the ultimate is having a helicopter that can fly mm-hmm. wherever, pretty much whenever. And, um, and to me, looking back now, you know, almost five years ago, it's, that's why we have all this training. That's why we have this equipment. And that's why we have, you know, a community that's pretty well educated about this. Not to mention, you know, I think people were really worried about the whole open gates just causing chaos. And there really hasn't been chaos back there, either on the park side or the Forest Service side. You don't want to rely on ski patrol or search and rescue, but it's good to know that people are trained to come to the rescue if needed. There's a growing... Uh... Awareness. Or... Awareness. Well, there's a gr- there's a growing appreciation for personal responsibility in the backcountry, and obviously, Greg's party totally did that. And people want to be savvy, and I think people want to be like companion rescue is a real legitimate thing that we all need to be aware of when we go in because he knew that his cell phone service was shoddy. We're in a hole. We could miss an opportunity to call in a rescue if we don't play our cards right. So, and that's huge. I mean, that could have made a big difference. There's a different, I mean, like three more hours out there. They would have been horrible. I mean, you know, that could have put me into a different world of hypothermia, frostbite, and who knows? I mean, shock. Uh, you know, yeah. I, and, you know, I mean, it ended up that I lost eight units of blood. So, you know, there was internal really? bleeding going on. Right. You know, of course. Yeah. So three, four more hours, who knows how many units of blood I would have lost. What if the ceiling was too low for a helicopter to fly? What if his cell phone had, had died? It obviously turned out for the better. And I think it was all with their, you know, fast action and awareness. I knew with my lower leg and at the point when I, the avalanche first, you know, when it first subsided and I was laying there, I wasn't totally certain about my pelvis. I didn't know that because the searing pain from my abdomen was so intense that it was masking the pelvis. Hmm. And it was only actually probably like 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes when I was laying there and I was like, guys, just feels really loose down here. Mm-hmm. And that's when started thinking, okay, maybe there's more of a, a bigger issue around my pelvic region than just p- torn abdominal muscles or right. whatever. That's Which, what that was, just torn abdominal muscles? Well, that was, yeah, the burning was I tore the abdominal muscles off my pelvic girdle. And then initially, in the beginning. That was the initial, like, just GER factor. And then, then yeah, the open-booked pelvis was the big... That was that was the big injury along with the shattered lower leg. And that's a big injury. I mean, anywhere inbounds, that would be a yeah. very serious injury. But considering your location, that was Yeah. But I 
You know, it comes back to, in my mind, preparedness. I can tell you, and you know, maybe this is complacency on my part or my group's part that day. But had I been in another part of the Tetons, we probably wouldn't have chosen an aggress that aggressive of a, of a line. Granite, I guess, and it wasn't because I thought a rescue was going to be easy or not. <laughs> But sure. it's it's but it was because I I it was I, familiar. Things were reacting the way I expected them to react up until that point, and you know I mean I remember Bob Comey said you just chose an aggressive line for the conditions, and I'm like, yep, you're right. I chose an aggressive line for the conditions, and I've also paid the price. Yeah, but I you know it's never. And Jeff's kind of said this before. I, I've never gone into granite without intent and intentional movements and basically looking over my shoulder the entire time or, you know, having a game plan with whoever your ski partner is um, and just the awareness of where are they, where are you, where are we going. In my mind, you know, the takeaway, and, you know, I did a – I think a seven, I, I, TGR interviewed me pretty quickly after that. You know, what did you learn about being in an avalanche? And I think it was like the seven or eight things that I learned about being in an avalanche. But I can honestly say the number one thing is ski partners. Who are you choosing to go do these things with? And are they skilled, experienced, trained enough that if something goes wrong and it could be as bad as you know or as, i don't know you sprain your knee or twist an ankle but can move to go no further to you have serious injuries does that person have the ability or does your do your ski partners have the ability to start dealing with getting a rescue in motion and and a level of first aid that's going to at least stabilize you i mean I, I don't think you can expect people to be doing tracheotomies or right. any of that stuff but at least they should know okay i need to watch vitals i need to make sure they're warm i need to check and make sure they're not bleeding out make sure that they're having consistent breathing do they have a head injury neck in you know any one of myriad of things which you know is essentially an, an advanced first aid course and you can take it from there as to mm-hmm. but those are you can take that in the summer you can take that in a time when you're not busy but it, it's it's about your friends you know it really is it's about those people that you like to do things in the backcountry with you know you want them to be continue to be your friends and sometimes shit happens this podcast is produced by backcountry zero a vision of the teton county search and rescue foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the tetons find out more at backcountryzero.com